Well, chapter 10 of Luke is the start of the final six months of Jesus' life. And so Jesus has only six months left to live. And uh, some things we noted last week is now, what is it that he is focused on? With only six months left to live, knowing that as he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to his death, he's going to give his life for the sins of the world. What were his uh, focuses? What were his priorities? And, And we noted last week that Jesus' focus and priority was on the lost. He knew his time was short, and he wanted to reach as many people as possible, so he sends out 70 more of his followers to go to the towns that he was going to go to, to go to the cities that he was going to go to, to go before him and prepare the people for his arrival so that more people would come to know him. Jesus knew his time was short, and so his priority was the loss, and we noted how important that was for us as well. He had this urgency to reach people who didn't know him. Now, as we continue through chapter 10, we're going to see two encounters that Jesus has with different people. And I think these two encounters fit well with what we looked at last week of having this urgency to reach people who don't know him. And so we're going to look at these things uh, and hopefully learn some good challenges and encouragement from it. Starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, uh, we're told this. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor. The first encounter that Jesus has is a man who we're told his occupation is he's a lawyer. Now when we think of the word lawyer today, we usually think of someone who prosecutes or someone who defends in a court of law, but that's not what this is referring to. This isn't a lawyer in the sense of we think of the word. This man was an expert in the Mosaic law. Uh, That was his field of expertise. He was someone who really knew the law, someone who interpreted the law. Uh, And so that was, you know, this individual's role, his job. Uh, And so he comes to Jesus, this scholar in the Mosaic Law. And we're noticed there's something important we're told. We're told that he stood up and he tested Jesus. Something that we've seen many times by the religious leaders who are trying to undermine, who are trying to get Jesus in the catch-22, who are trying to you know, cause Jesus to look bad in front of the crowds. And so here we're told this man comes and he tests Jesus. Now this Greek word that's used, uh, translated test, is a very strong word. It means to tempt, entice, ensnare, lure, or test someone. In the Bible, this Greek word is only used in a negative way. Here in the Gospel of Luke, we've already seen it used. It was translated a little bit different, but when you see the connotation it's used in, you'll definitely realize that it is negative. Luke chapter 4, verse 12, remember when Jesus is tempted by Satan, it says, And Jesus answered and said to Satan, It has been said, You shall not tempt, the same Greek word, the Lord your God. So this lawyer of the Mosaic Law, he comes, he stands up, he's before Jesus, here's the scholar when it comes to the law, and now he's testing Jesus. He's trying to throw something out of Jesus, maybe thinking, oh, you won't have the right answer for this, and we can make you look bad, we can discredit you among the people. The question that this lawyer, this man has is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a great question. 
One of the most important questions that anyone can ever ask, sadly, it's coming from a man who's not really interested in the true answer of this. It's not coming from a heart that says, oh, I really want to know the answer to this question. It's coming from a guy who's saying, I'm ultimately testing you, Jesus. I'm throwing this out there to kind of see where you're at and hopefully to discredit you. So it's a great question, but unfortunately not coming from a sincere, interested person in what the answer is. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question that really everyone in this world should be asking and hopefully coming to the true answer that we're going to see from what Jesus reveals to what we need to know. How can we have eternal life? But sadly, I'm sure you have experienced it as well. You find people who ask this, but really, they don't really have a sincere heart. They're not really posing this question because they really want to have the answer. Something important to note is that the Jewish concept of eternal life is very different than what many people think of eternal life today. Most people, when they think of eternal life, they think of quantity of life, living forever. When the Jews thought of eternal life, they thought more of quality of life. Because they understood something that's very important for all of us to understand. Everyone who dies will then live for eternity. See, there's this concept that only those who go to heaven will then live for eternity, and those who don't go to heaven will not live for eternity. You're just going to die, and your life's going to end. The Jews understood, no, no, no. Everyone, once they die, has an eternal life. The question is, what kind of quality of life will you have? And so when they referred to eternal life, they were thinking of quality of life, eternal life with God in heaven, a great quality of life. That is what they wanted, because they knew the opposite of that was another quality of life, absent from God in hell, not something that anyone wants for eternity. So when they're speaking of eternal life, they're thinking of this question of, how do you gain this life in heaven for eternity with God? So the lawyer asked this question. And notice how Jesus responds to this lawyer's question. He responds the way he often did, especially to people who were trying to test him, to people who weren't really sincere in the questions they were asking. Instead of answering this man's question, Jesus responds to this man with a question. He says, what's written in the law? What is your reading of it? Noticing, hey, you're the scholar. That's your expertise. What is it that you say gives us? eternal life. What's your reading of the law? The lawyer answers the question, you so love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds to this lawyer, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. You know, Jesus acknowledges, hey, you know what? You know the word. You know that's the right answer. That's good. You, you gave the right answer, but there's something that you need to understand about this answer. You need to do what you just said if you want to gain eternal life through the law. What does the law say will give you eternal life? Well, you've got to love God completely, and you've got to love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, you've answered rightly. If you want to gain salvation through the law, those are things you need to do. Do that, and you will live. Now, the lawyer understands what Jesus is saying, and notice what he says in verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
See, this lawyer wants to justify himself to try to show that he really does love his neighbor, that he really is living up to the standard that God gives, but he knew it really came down to how you define who your neighbor is. You see, with the Jews, they had a definition of their neighbor that was basically something that the Jewish scholars that would be like this lawyer, they came to an interpretation that um, a neighbor for a Jew was someone of their own country, their own nation, and their own religion. So if you weren't Jewish, living in Israel, practicing Judaism, you weren't a neighbor. And therefore, they didn't have to love them as God tells them to. We only need to love our neighbor. So if you're not Jewish, living in Israel, practicing Judaism, then under our definition of what a neighbor is, you don't count. And so if we don't love you, it's okay. We're not breaking the law. Now, there were others who got even more specific. They say, you know what, that's not even good enough because there's some Jews living in Israel, practicing Judaism, that really don't fit this category according to us. So it's only those that are your friends, those that you're acquainted with, those that you really care about. Those are the only ones that you really have to love. And so in that time, there's these different concepts of what does it mean to be a neighbor? Because that's very important based on this you know, challenge of you have to love your neighbor as yourself. So if a neighbor is just someone that's a friend, hey, I can do that. I can love those that are my friends. And if a neighbor is just someone who's a fellow Jew living in Israel, who's practicing Judaism, maybe he thinks, I, I could achieve that. But if the, the neighbor is a broader concept than that, then he realizes, I'm going to have a problem. So the question is, how do you define neighbor? And that's why he poses this question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Well, in response to this Jesus shares a parable. But before we get into that, I think it's important to recognize that the Jews in that day as well, notice what they've done. Not only do they have this concept of neighbor in kind of a very limited perspective, but they've taken this to mean something that didn't. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps saying, you've heard it was said. Basically, the scholars of your day, those who are interpreting the law of your day, they're saying this, but I say what is actually right. They've been saying something that's wrong, and I'm going to tell you what the law actually says. And notice what he says in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, so these scholars have said this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You see, the religious leaders, not only did they say, my neighbor is only fellow Jews living in the Israel, who practice Judaism, they're saying the connotation or the implication is, if I only need to love them, then I can hate those who aren't in that category of neighbor. So they were teaching, love your neighbor, and guess what? You have the privilege to hate your enemy. You don't have to love them, because that's what they're saying the law is telling you. You only have to love this small group, and you can hate anyone who is not within that group, anyone who you consider your enemy. And so Jesus, as he gives a Sermon on the Mount, says, well, that's not true. If they understood what a, uh, the neighbor really was, they would understand you need to love everybody, including your enemy. And that's why he turns around and says, well, I tell you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you and spitefully use you and pray for them who hate you. So now we're going to see Jesus respond, hey, you know what? You want to know who your neighbor is? Then I'll give you this parable to let you know. And this is one of the most famous parables in the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And notice the context here. He's wanting to use this parable to help this person understand, well, who is your neighbor? Well, that's a good question. Who is it that I'm supposed to love? Good question. Let me give you a parable to help you learn the answer to that question. 
Verse 30 says this. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, he was, who stripped him of his clothes, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came down and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he departed. He took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go. And do likewise. So Jesus gives us this parable. He says, all right, you want to know the answer of who is my neighbor? Here, listen to this. There's a man, he's traveling from Jericho, uh, from Jerusalem, heading down to Jericho. And on his journey, these thieves come out and they take his clothes, they take all his belongings, they beat him and leave him half dead, laying there naked on the road. And there's three different individuals who come by while this man is in great need. This Jewish man, by the way, who's laying there. The first is a priest. Now you would think, obviously, a priest. Not just a Jewish person, but someone who's devoted his life to following and serving you know, God. He surely is going to stop. He's going to stop for a fellow Jew. He's going to stop and help this individual. He's going to stop and show love to someone who is a Jew, living in Israel, practicing Judaism. Surely he's going to do it. And Jesus says he sees him. And he just passes right on by, doesn't do anything. Well, then a Levite comes. Well, the Levites are the ones where the priestly tribe came from. So here's another person who's Jewish, who you would think would stop, who would see a fellow Jew in need. You know, they're naked, beaten, almost dead. Someone needs to come help him. But no, Jesus says, this man passes by as well. And then the third person that Jesus throws out, which I'm sure would have been a little bit of a shock to those listening, he says, then a Samaritan comes by. And we've noted here already in Luke how much the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. Because the Samaritans were those who were half Jewish, half Gentile. Those Jews who decided to disobey God, marry pagans, and ultimately they came up with their own religion. And then they were not worshiping God. And they you know, were there right next to uh, the Jews there in Israel. And so they had very much enemy animosity. You know, this was someone where the Jews would have looked at the Samaritan as an enemy. The Samaritan would have looked at the Jews as an enemy. And so here's a group of people that you would say, you don't have to show love to Samaritans. That's the way that they were interpreting the law. Love thy neighbor does not include Samaritans. And notice Jesus says, here comes a Samaritan, the one who had all the right in the world according to the way you interpret the law, just to keep walking. He sees a Jew, he can say, well, forget that Jew, he's my enemy, I don't need to do anything for him, I hope he dies. They would be okay with that, because that would, they would think, that's the way a Samaritan should be, he's our enemy. But Jesus says, no, the Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite, comes and he sees this man. He sees him wounded, he sees him naked, he sees him half dead. He comes and he picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, bandages his wound, and even pays the innkeeper and says, you know what, whatever you have to pay in order to help this man recover, I will take care of that cost. And after Jesus is done sharing this parable, he says, ultimately, who is the one who showed love to him? The lawyer knows the answer. The one who's shown mercy. The Samaritan. But notice that Jesus once again... He comes back to this man and he says, you know what? Go and do likewise. 
That's what you need to do. If you want to know how to show love to your neighbor, then your neighbor is not just fellow Jews living in Jerusalem, practicing Judaism. They're everybody, including the despised Samaritans. Your neighbor is everyone on this earth. And so if you want to love your neighbor, well, go and do likewise. Go and love everyone, even enemies like the Samaritans did. Now, the lawyer has a problem because he knows this isn't something I have done and this isn't something that I can continue to do. And he wanted to justify himself before God and say, well, yeah, how do I, internal, how do I inherit eternal life through the law? Well, I love God, I've done that, and I love my neighbor. Well, I, I've done that as long as my neighbor is just fellow Jews. But now he realizes, no, it's bigger than that. And he realizes, I have a problem. There's no way I can live up to the standard if that is how we define who our neighbor is. You know, this isn't the only person in the Gospels that came and asked Jesus this question. You might know of the rich young ruler. Came to Jesus, asked the exact same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that Jesus does the same thing with this man. He brings him back ultimately to the standard of God, the perfect standard of the law, and this man realizes, I can't meet that. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and then serve the Lord. And he went away sad because he had many possessions. Ultimately, he was not willing to give up. Jesus says, you know what? Here's the standard. Are you willing to live up to it? If you want to try to get inheritance, uh, eternal life through the law, here's the standard. Go for it. Both guys leave recognizing, I can't meet that standard. We see that's the point. Jesus points them to the law to reveal their sin. To reveal, you know what? You can't get eternal life through trying to keep the law. You can't attain eternal life in heaven trying to live up to the perfect standard of God. You see, the purpose of the law wasn't given in order to save us by trying to keep it. God didn't say, here's the law, go ahead and keep it, and then you'll be saved. Then you'll have eternal life with me. Then you'll be able to be in heaven with me. That wasn't the purpose of the law. He, the purpose of the law was, I want you to know what my perfect standard is. Be perfect, be holy as I am. It's a perfect standard, and I want you to recognize none of you can attain it. The book of Galatians speaks about this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and also verses 24 and 25. Notice what it says. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. No one. For the just shall live by faith. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law wasn't the thing that was ever meant to justify us, make us right in the eyes of God. Faith was. Faith in Jesus Christ was the thing that was going to justify us, make us right in the eyes of God. And Paul saying, it's evident. No one can be justified by trying to live up to the perfect standard. Why? Because none of us can. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When it speaks of falling short, it's speaking of falling short of that perfect standard that God has established. Each one of us has fallen short. Some fallen short more than others. But the bottom line is, all of us have fallen short. None of us can attain the perfect standard that the law gives. Well, then what's its purpose? What's its point? Well, verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The point of the law was to say, here's the perfect standard, and here are you. You don't measure up. Guess what? You need Jesus. It's pointing you to Jesus. It shows you, I need a Savior because I could never in my own works attain perfection. 
and my own works I can never attain what God desires of me. So it says the purpose of the law is not to give it to you so that you can become so righteous that you'll gain eternal life. The purpose of the law was to show you you never could do it and that you need Jesus. It points us to Jesus. None of us are perfect. All of us need Jesus the Savior. So when the rich young ruler and the lawyer asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus brings them to the law to show them their sin, to show them, guess what, guys? You can never inherit eternal life based on your works because you will never be able to meet the perfect standard the law gives. The only way to inherit eternal life is to believe in Jesus, the one who did perfectly keep the law, the one who did live it out on our behalf, and the one who did pay for our sins on the cross. So you see, this first encounter with Jesus connects well with what we looked at last week. Because last week we saw we need an urgency to reach people with the gospel who don't know the truth of what Christ has done with it for them. But the reality is so often all we talk about is the good news. Oh, Jesus loves you. He died for you. But for someone who doesn't know the bad news, that doesn't make any sense. Well, okay, he died for me. Well, why did I need anyone to die for me? You know, why do I need a Savior? I'm doing fine. I'm a good person. You know, I don't need any of this. You know, that sounds nice. I'm glad Jesus loves me. When we just share the good news without the bad news, the good news doesn't make any sense. We have to start with, hey, guess what? There's a perfect standard that God has for each one of us, and you and I can never live up to it. Are you perfect? Have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever sinned? Have you ever done anything? Everyone's going to come to the answer of, yes, I have failed, some more than others. So you say, well, here's the problem. God's standard is, if you want to obtain eternal life through what you do, you have to be perfect, and you're not. So guess what? God says the punishment of that is hell. Since you have not attained a perfect standard before him, he has to punish you. That's the bad news. The good news is he sent his son to live out the perfect standard. He became one of us and he met the perfect standard. He lived everything perfectly and so that he could be the one who actually fulfilled the law. And not only that, when he was done fulfilling the law, he gave his life for our sins. For each one of those things that we did that didn't meet the perfect standard, Jesus took upon himself so that those things could be dealt with, so that we now, in faith in what he's done, could accept him and have eternal life. But as we go out with this urgency to share the gospel, this urgency to reach the lost, let's make sure that we're communicating something that people can understand, not just Jesus loves you, which is a great part of the message, but it's not the entire message. They need to understand first and foremost, hey, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm not pointing the finger and saying, look at you, horrible sinner. We're all sinners. We all fall in short. That's why we all need Jesus, the Savior. And once they recognize where their standing is before God, then they understand why they need Jesus and hopefully will be willing to accept him and what he's done for them. You know, the most common view of the standard necessary to get into heaven, I'm sure you've noticed as you talk with people, is, you know what, as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm fine. Ask anyone, rarely do you find someone who considers himself a bad person. Almost everyone says, oh, I'm a good person. Oh, really, how do you define that? Well, my good outweighs my bad. No one's saying, when they say, I'm a good person, I've never made a mistake. No one ever claims that. They're saying, I'm a good person. Well, really, you're perfect? No, well, my good outweighs my bad. That's what makes me a good person. Okay, so how is it that you are going to get into heaven when you stand before God? Well, when I stand before God, the standard is, if I've done more good than bad, God will let me in. That's what the majority of people feel who don't know what the Bible teaches. 
And some who even think they do know what the Bible teaches. There's this concept of, as long as I do more good than bad, I'll be good. When I stand before God, that's all I need. But here's the problem. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The standard's perfection. And all you have to do is one bad thing, and that perfect standard has not been met. God's standard isn't do more good than bad. His standard is be perfect, be holy, just as I am perfect and holy. So when we share the gospel with people, we need to start with the bad news. God's perfect. His standard is perfect. None of us meet that standard, but Jesus did. We need to accept what he has done for us. Well, now let's look at the second encounter that Jesus has. It also connects well with what we looked at last week, verse 38. Now it happened as they went, he encountered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Here Jesus encounters two sisters. Their names are Mary and Martha. They also have a brother named Lazarus, which might ring a bell. He's the one that Jesus brought back from the dead. But he loved this family dearly. And he's headed over to their house for dinner. Now I want you to picture this because sometimes I think we give Martha this really bad rap right off the bat. But the reality is, if Jesus was coming to your house after this service, what would be your mindset? How would you want your house to look? How would the meal you, we were going to serve, how would you want it to be? I'm sure all of us would be thinking, man, I want my house to look perfect. I want the meal to be just right. I want everything to be just right. Jesus is coming over, and I want everything just to be all together and right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with Martha having that desire. I think that's a good thing that she wants to bless Jesus because she loves him so much. So let's not start with giving her a negative thing with that. That's not her issue. Martha wants everything to be right. Jesus shows up, and we're told when he gets there... He starts teaching, as Jesus so often did. But guess what? The sister, who I'm sure Martha and her plans thought she'll be helping, isn't helping. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. She's wanting to take on board the teaching that Jesus has given. Martha's starting to get upset. I got all these things to do. Not only is Jesus here, the disciples are here, there's all these people in my house. There's so much to be done. How are we going to serve all of them? I'm sure she's thinking of all these things because she wants it just to be right and perfect and a blessing to Jesus. And she's getting upset because the person who should be helping her in her mind is Mary, her sister, the one who lives there with her. Hey, you're here too. You have a responsibility here. Come on, come and help me with this. But Mary's not helping. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. So Martha, we don't get told how long she's kind of getting upset. She finally gets to the point. She comes to Jesus. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. If she'll listen to anyone, obviously she's thinking, she's not going to listen to me because I've already probably told her, Mary, come on, I need your help. Mary's not helping. So she comes to Jesus. Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all this alone, all this work alone? Tell Mary to come help me serve. You know, what Martha thinks she was doing in serving Jesus was what was most important. And she can't understand why Jesus wouldn't want Mary to join her in doing what was most important. Obviously, Jesus, what's most important is that we serve you here, that we bless you here. I don't think it was the wrong heart 
and Martha that she had this, but Martha just missed something that Mary understood. And so Jesus is going to help her. Martha, you know, I'm happy that you want to serve me. I'm happy that you want everything right. I'm happy you're trying to bless me. But you know what? You've missed something that's even better. Notice what we're told here. She thought serving Jesus was the most important thing. And we're told that she was distracted. Distracted by serving. Well, what did her service distract her from? It distracted her from that intimacy with Jesus. It distracted her from sitting at Jesus' feet as Mary did, receiving from him the truth that he was declaring. And he says to Martha, 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 you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her. Because Martha was distracted with serving, she missed the one thing she really needed. She missed the one thing that Mary had sitting at Jesus' feet, that intimacy with Jesus. He's saying, no, 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 Martha, the most important thing isn't serving me. The most important thing is personal intimacy with me. And I think this is the issue here. One of the most needed things for us as believers is to regularly spend time personally with Jesus, spend time at his feet, spend time receiving from him and his word in prayer, just you and him. But oftentimes we get distracted from that one thing that is so important. And you know what? There are many distractions that keep us from time with Jesus. And we could probably sit here and go around and people could share and we could probably have a list of 50 to 100 things that distract us from time with Jesus. But the reality is, I think one of the most dangerous distractions is serving the Lord. And you know why it's so dangerous? Is because it's so easy to justify. You see, most of the distractions that we have when it comes to personal time with Jesus are sinful things. And so it's hard to justify doing something sinful when you know you should be spending time with Jesus. Or just doing something that might not be sinful, but it's really not very helpful, it's not very beneficial, you know, it's not something spiritual. And so those are hard things to try to justify when there's this balance of, okay, should I do this or should I spend time with Jesus? But you know what? When it comes to serving, that's a little more difficult. Well, Jesus, you tell me to serve you. I'm supposed to serve you. I'm doing this on your behalf. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this unto you. And so it's easy to say, well, surely this is as important or maybe even more important. And so we start serving and serving and serving and neglecting intimacy, neglecting personal time with the Lord. You know, this is something that I have been guilty of many times in my life. Getting so caught up with what I want to do for God that I miss spending time with God. And it was easy to justify. Well, Lord, I'm here planning a church in Scotland and, and doing all this work and, and investing in all these people. And I realized, you know, there's been so much time where I'm just serving and investing and pouring and doing all these things. But yet, the thing that seems to keep getting put on the back burner is that personal time with you because I'm so busy doing all the things I think you want me to do. And God had to stop me and help me to see, you know what, you've missed what's most important. You're out there serving and doing these things, and I love that, and I appreciate that, but you know what? You missed something that's even more valuable, taking time alone with me, spending time with me, engaging with me, letting me speak to you and help you grow. And he also showed me, you know what? You can only pour out so much before you get empty. See, the reality is, for those of you who love to serve the Lord, that's a wonderful thing. I don't think in this passage it's saying Martha was bad for serving the Lord. I think the problem is she didn't have a proper balance. All she was doing was serving without the proper balance of taking time away to be with Jesus. But you know what? Serving is great, but we also need to realize when we serve, there's only so much we have to offer 
until we finally just get empty and we need that time with Jesus to fill us back up again. For those of you who serve, you probably have come to that recognition. It's only through that time with Jesus that he strengthens, empowers, gives you that encouragement, gives you that challenge, gives you those words to speak to people so that you have something to offer. But yet, you know what? As the time goes by, a week, two weeks, a month, the longer it is since you spent time with Jesus, the less you have to offer. The more you kind of just spend yourself, pour yourself out, and it's like, well, I need to be refreshed. I'm giving, 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 but I'm not receiving. And so that's why it's so vital to have the balance of doing both. When we neglect that time with Jesus, we're basically running on empty. I know in ministry I've been running on empty a lot of times because I thought, well, it's so important to serve, 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 and neglecting what ultimately enables me to serve. And that's taking that time out that I should regularly do, that you should regularly do, to spend with Jesus. Now when Jesus says one thing is needed, we need to spend time at his feet, Especially at Bible college, I know people who try to interpret, that's the only thing that's needed. And that's a big fallacy as well. And there would be people in the Bible college, and it's like, hey, you know, we're going to go out to movie. You guys want to go? Oh, you heathens, we're just going to sit here and pray, and we're just going to sit here and read the Bible, because that's all we do, because that's all you're supposed to do. And it was like, our life is only, we don't do anything else. We shouldn't work, you shouldn't do anything else. You should just spend time with Jesus, because that the one thing, the only thing, Okay, well, we're going to go witness to people. Oh, no, we're not coming because the one thing is to spend time with Jesus. And it was like this mindset of like they misrepresented what this passage was saying. Jesus isn't saying this is the only thing. He's saying this should be the priority. The number one priority should be time with me. Serving is important. We need to do it. But there needs to be the balance. There's plenty of things as Christians we need to do. But yet when we neglect time with the Lord, we have an improper balance in the mix of things. God doesn't want us to only do one of these things and neglect the other. He wants us to do both. You know, this account of Mary and Martha reveals that there are basically three types of Christians when it comes to serving and spending time intimately with Jesus. There are first those like Mary. Mary, I think, understood both. She understood how to serve. We see that in the scriptures as well. But she also understood the priority of sitting at Jesus' feet. Second, we have people like Martha, those who diligently, and I believe with the best of intention, serve God, but without understanding that there's something even more important that you need to engage in, that you need to give time to, and that's that personal time with Jesus. You know, and I think both of those people, that's a good place. You know, if you have a heart to really serve, I don't think it's hard to to get from there to recognizing, I need personal time with Jesus. And obviously, if you're already where Mary's at, then you're at a great place. The problem I see too often is that there's a third group where neither are important. I don't care about serving Jesus. I'm not even in the house. Not only, you know, I'm not sitting at Jesus' feet because I'm doing my own thing. So it's like, I don't care about serving, and I don't care about sitting at his feet. All I care about is doing my thing. And sadly, that's where a lot of Christians are today. It's not really an issue of, you're serving the Lord too much, and you need to make sure you take some time to spend with him. It's like, you're not serving him at all, and you're not spending time with him at all. And there's a huge problem when that happens. But I want you to ask yourself this morning, which one of these three describes you most? Would you say that you have a proper balance? That you recognize serving Jesus is important, but also spending time with him is important, and, and you regularly do both? Or maybe you're someone that's like, you know, you're driven to serve, you love to serve, and, and you kind of get caught up, as I have a lot in my life, where you're serving and serving and serving and neglecting the intimacy, neglecting the personal time. Or perhaps you're here and you say, you know what? I'm in that category of, I'm not really too concerned about either. I'm more concerned about my pursuits, 
what I want to do with my life and serving Jesus and spending time with him are kind of things I put on the back burner because these other things are more important to me. Obviously, God wants us to be like Mary with the right balance of serving him and spending that personal time with him. The second encounter, I think, also connects well with what we looked at last week concerning the urgency of reaching people with the gospel. Because I know in my own life, I get these things where I get these challenges and I see, wow, look at how many people are lost. Look at the priority that Jesus put on reaching those people. Look at the commands that God gives for doing that. But it might not just be reaching the lost. It might be anything that God commands us to do. And I know in my own self, there's this tendency to say, man, I'm going to go 100% towards that. I'm going to try to drive towards that. I'm going to try to do that. But it's not balanced. It's like, man, I'm just going to only do that. All right, we need an urgency to reach the lost, and that's all we're going to do. We're just going to evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. We're going to do that. But now we're not serving in the body of Christ. We're not spending time with Jesus. We're not doing other things that are important. And so as we get this challenge from last week of having an urgency to reach the lost, which is important, it's just something that we need to do, we need to keep it in perspective of keep the balance. Make sure you're not neglecting other important things as you're seeking to pursue another important thing. And so as we see, yes, we should be living, recognizing Jesus could come for us. We want to have an urgency to reach people who don't know him, but also we don't want to be neglecting time with him. We don't want to be neglecting time with other believers. We want to have a balance in all of it. So with these two encounters, we see two important things for us to remember. First, we can't inherit eternal life through our works, through trying to keep the law, the only way to inherit eternal life is through believing in the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Second, we need to be careful not to allow our serving of Jesus, our desire to go out and reach people for Jesus, to keep us from that personal, intimate time of sitting at his feet. Worship team, come on up. We're going to close as we do the first Sunday of every month, just taking some time to remember what Jesus has done for us. And I think it's a great passage of Scripture to have in mind as we do that because we're thinking about, you know, what what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The reality is, I didn't do it. Jesus did it. I placed my faith in Him. That's what I do. I want to get eternal life. I have to place my faith in the One who has lived the perfect standard on my behalf. And so we're just going to take some time. Worship team is going to lead us in a song. We're going to pass out communion as they do that. But um, I just encourage you, if you're here and you've never accepted Christ, just let these elements pass you by. Uh, if you have accepted Christ, you're more than welcome to take this. We encourage you to do that. Uh, but uh, just hold on to the elements after the worship song. I'll come back up. Uh, we'll take these together. But uh, as you're just meditating on the song and thinking about what Christ has done, I encourage you just to get before him. If there are issues in your life, sins in your life that you have yet to confess to the Lord, get right with before you come and, and partake, uh, I would encourage you uh, just to come and confess those things to him. And so uh, we're going to have a song and uh, just hold on to the elements together.